0: He's a tech bro, tech entrepreneur who wants to live forever. Not
1: going to be a lot of tech bros that are going to be listening in to our show. You're pretty hard (laughs) on the tech bros. Okay, keep going.
0: I'm not worried about that. I think the tech bros should listen to this podcast. of Till Death Do Us Part. I'm excited. Yes. I'm excited to be here I talking about death. I am too. Is that weird? No, it's
1: not. That I'm,
0: I'm excited to well, talk about it's death. it's a
1: little bit weird, but that's okay.
0: <laughs> you still love me. We're your hosts. I'm Christiana. I'm an author. I've published essays and articles and books on the mystics and community and motherhood and death.
1: Mm. I'm Matthew. I'm a pastor at a small Mennonite congregation where I engage with death on a regular basis through my pastoral work. And I've seen firsthand how it's not only the wider culture that, that avoids talking about death, but the church does too.
0: So we started this podcast because we are a married couple and we think it's really important to talk more openly about death. So that's what we're going to keep doing. So in our last episode, we actually talked about some of the ways that we've seen our culture avoiding death. Today, we wanna talk about the reasons behind our cultural aversion to death, like why people avoid thinking about death in our culture and in our particular time period and even sometimes in our churches.
1: And we'll talk about why avoiding death is unhealthy and increases our anxiety, our loneliness, and our fears.
0: So on that note, I was rooting around the internet as one does, and I found a list of 100 ways to avoid dying. So I sent it to Matthew and we've each picked out a few. We're not gonna read all of them, don't worry. And these are what might be called folk remedies. Mm -hmm. So just as a warning, we are not these really probably won't keep you from dying. So
1: that's good to give that warning. It's it's good to give that warning. We're not doctors.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I want to read a few that our family has already failed at. And so we'll probably, at some point, lead to our doom. Closing umbrellas before bringing them into the house. That's one we've probably heard before. Mm. Keeping the cats off piano keys. We've failed at that one. Um, don't walk around in one shoe. I have not failed at that one, but I think a couple of our kids have. Mm.
1: So does that does that work that way, where if one of the kids fails, it could actually kind of well, affect I, you too?
0: I don't know. I, hmm. I I would hope that it affects me and not them. This but... doesn't seem
1: very scientific, but
0: <laughs> it's a folk remedy. Okay. Okay. Don't sing in bed. That that's probably when I failed at it personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any that you wanna You wanna bring up?
1: I think one of my favorite one was was don't ever ever rock an empty rocking chair. That's which, creepy. Yeah. I think any chair. That is moving and empty is creepy. But you know what it reminded me of? Have you ever seen the movie The Changeling?
0: Of course I yeah. have.
1: It's a class yeah, <laughs> classic horror movie. And this is immediately what I thought of when I read that. It's a great scene. The woman comes into the house and she's climbing up the stairs and she finally gets to the attic and all of a sudden this empty wheelchair flips around and turns to her and then it begins to chase her through the mansion. It is a terrifying it's, scene. It's horrifying. Yeah. So we, that
0: we are familiar with this movie because they used to show it every year at the local theater in our in the town where we went to college. Did yeah. you go see yeah, it in the Paramount? I, I think I did one time. Yeah. And they sometimes would put an actual rocking chair up on the stage.
1: Yeah. You know, near
0: <laughs> near the screen because there was uh, yeah. space. Yeah, it's a, it, yeah. it haunts my. I would encourage
1: sometimes. this is in October to uh, watch the line No,
0: I'm not ever watching that again. <laughs> Okay. All right. Here's another one. Okay, of mine. Go ahead.
1: Avoid sweeping after sundown.
0: I mean, I'm fine with that.
1: Yeah, you shouldn't sweep. No, here's what here's what it reminded me again. I'm not exactly sure how what this means in our country, but when I lived in West Africa, you didn't sweep after sundown because that was when the ancestors came out, and then it was not okay to sweep. So they you would be real. It was not okay to sweep like after sundown.
0: People really, really didn't want you to. Yeah. No, you get that's interesting. Yep. Okay, here's. A few especially odd ones. Um, don't let two people comb your hair at once. Hmm. That's just odd to yeah, me. Yeah. And never ever share a razor used by a dead man. Hmm. That's just so don't really use gross. your
1: grandpa's razor, your straight razor. Hmm.
0: I guess I not. mean that could be
1: pretty cool to use your, if your grandpa had a straight no, razor. And but no, used don't it. do it. Don't do it.
0: Here's a couple of macabre ones about funerals. If a corpse lies unburied on Sunday, another in town will surely die soon. And when a person dies in a house, you must immediately cover all mirrors and stop all clocks. That reminds me of the Victorian era, because I think they actually would cover, you know, they would wear black, they would cover the mirrors, they would stop the clocks, Mm. cover them with kind of
1: black veils. What was the, why stop the clocks?
0: I I don't know what the reasoning behind it was, except maybe it just dramatically said this is the time Mm -hmm. when they died Mm -hmm. that that's not scientific or historical
1: (laughs) keep reminding so here's, here's speaking of dying in the house i like this one always remove a dead body feet first and i just that i don't know why but that just makes sense to me so if i it makes sense to you yeah if i die in the house i want you to make sure and haul me out dead body feet first um and that's for my sake and for your sake
0: why does that make sense to you
1: it just seems intuitive. If you're going to haul a body out of the house, you need to haul it out feet first.
0: But why?
1: Yeah. Again, I don't. A lot of this is mystery. It's not is science. Is that so? You won't
0: like bump the head when you're going yeah. out head first, or?
1: It just seems more. I don't know why, but it just seems to make sense to yeah. me. So please you could haul have my
0: some of these.
1: <laughs> haul my body out feet first. All right, I got one more here. Okay. Don't look into a mirror over another's shoulder. Like that's just creepy.
0: That, that reminds me of like those horror vampire movies where you would look in the mirror like the person would be looking in the mm-hmm. mirror and they would see the yeah. somebody behind them or I don't know. Maybe it wasn't a vampire but they'd see somebody in the mirror behind them and they'd turn around and there was nobody there.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah that's just creepy. One more, sleep sorry, one more, sleeping with your head at the foot of the bed is surely fatal. It surely is. Like I feel like if you do that you, sh- you you're asking <laughs> for trouble. Like, who does that? Who's
0: <laughs> Well, that's kind of sad if your kids crawl in bed with you. And the only uh, way, like a long time ago, like my grandfather, they had like eight or nine kids. So they had to sleep. They only had one one or two beds. They had mm-hmm. to sleep foot to head or whatever. Maybe it's fatal because of the smell of some people's feet. Yeah,
1: well, that could be. Maybe we should ask, we should get some feedback on having people try these out. And oh, see we should. If... <laughs> yeah,
0: try these out at home. <laughs>
1: Haul the dead body out of your house feet first. Don't try it head first and let us know how that goes.
0: Oh my. I like this one. Be sure that someone else cooks your birthday dinner. I mean, that seems obvious to me because if you make me cook my own birthday dinner, then I might become murderous.
1: Can that be a restaurant cooking your birthday dinner? Yeah, somebody else is cooking it. You just can't cook your own birthday dinner. Okay.
0: My final favorite whatever you do, don't let a lizard count your teeth. Yeah. Seriously, just don't.
1: That one actually makes sense to me.
0: <laughs> if a lizard is close enough to your mouth to count your teeth, then you're probably yeah, in trouble. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Good. Are we gonna put you should put a link to that in the show notes? <laughs> yeah, we'll
0: link to this because I know that we all need tips on how to avoid death. So I mean this is a good segue in all seriousness to why we avoid death?
1: Mm-hmm. So why do you personally? Think, why do you think we avoid death?
0: I've seen two articles in major publications lately about avoiding death. Um, one was in the Washington Post this year, and it was titled "Want to Avoid Death? Maybe Cryogenics Isn't Crazy." Mm-hmm. And if you don't know, and I'm glad if you don't know. Cryogenics is keeping the body frozen in low temperatures until science catches up and is able to reanimate the body. There are actually about 500 people that have been cryogenically frozen. And most of them, of course, are in the U.S. and, sorry, are male and are in the tech industry mm-hmm. and are wealthy. Mm-hmm. So,
1: hopefully, they had their when they were carried out of their house, they were carried out first, first too.
0: Because then it would all like, can you imagine all the wealth it takes to cryogenically freeze somebody, but they've been brought out head first?
1: Somebody could really (laughs) mess that up.
0: So, there's this former cancer doctor apparently who has several hundred people on a waiting list to cryogenically freeze them. But then there was this other article, which it does have to do with this first one. And this was in Time Magazine, and I actually sent this to you, I think, about a guy named Brian Johnson. That he's 46 years old, so he's a year older than me, and he's called a centimillionaire, which I'd never heard that phrase before. And of course, he's a tech bro, tech entrepreneur who wants to live forever. I'm not
1: not going to be a lot of tech bros that are going to be listening into our show. You're pretty hard <laughs> on the tech bros. Okay, keep going.
0: I'm not worried about that. I think the tech bros should listen to this podcast okay, right. because. All of the photos on this Time magazine are things that he's doing to avoid death. He's spent more than $4 million developing a life extension system. He wears a laser face shield to bed. There's stuff that he does that I don't want to say on this podcast because it would maybe give us an explicit rating. It's very strange. But he outsources every decision involving his body to a team of doctors who use data to develop all this regimen that he's going through so
1: yeah I read that article I thought it was fascinating actually yeah I think you should put a link to that too I thought it was a fascinating I maybe know. one of the saddest parts was that he said uh, towards the end of the article uh, if he <laughs> if somebody were to marry him he had been married once but he's divorced if somebody were to marry him again there would be no small talk and no sleeping together in the same beds <laughs> I like. I like this. I wonder oh what goodness. small talk does to uh, somebody's life expectancy. But uh, yeah, that was one of my kind of the, one of the funniest and weird. saddest lines. Yeah, so I
0: actually thought that being married or having a long term relationship is actually can be good for your health.
1: Yeah, I've read that too. But uh, oh, how strange. Yeah.
0: So this to me, this shows like this psychological idea that it is possible to avoid death and therefore if you possibly can live on, if there is a future in which you could live on, then why concern yourself with death? Mm-hmm. Why not just totally avoid thinking about it?
1: He seemed to be thinking about death all the time because I noticed I think in one of the pictures in the the article he had it a- what was he wearing? He, with his one, he has a disciple. In the article, it talks about this young woman who's become his disciple. I think he only has one disciple at this point.
0: That's sketchy. Yeah, it's a woman. I saw at, a picture of her in her twenties. She's mm. his disciple, and she's mm. bought into
1: the program. But his, his, he has a son too that that apparently has kind of bought into the program they call it. Mm. But they had the picture. I think it said "No Death" or something like that. So, so they were uh, they had their <laughs> kind thin- of own memento mori, but they were kind of the I would that be the anti memento mori that I will not die.
0: But I think that's so problematic. I was reading this, this study by a researcher in Israel who was talking about how the brain does not accept that death is related to us. We have this mechanism in our brain that tells us when we think about death, that that's not reliable. That's not us. We shouldn't believe it. And he says, like, in the past, we had that and we've always had that. We want to survive. It makes sense, of course. But because death was more of a reality in the past, there was this balance that was happening. Mm-hmm. But something happens when there's not the balance of death as a reality. When you try to avoid death or when you think you can't avoid death, that there is some psychological danger when our brains are... Trying to avoid death. Yeah. I would say that that guy is not practicing memento mori, he's practicing death avoidance. Mm-hmm. Don't you think?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I describe it as the anti memento mori. Yeah, that, the anti memento Remember that's that you right. won't okay. die. I think he was wearing a shirt that said basically reminding himself that he will not die. So. <sighs> Let's think about this from a Christian perspective. I don't meet too many Christians who are doing the cryogenics. That's true. I'm sure there probably are, but Mm
0: -hmm.
1: they don't seem to be asking the question, is it possible to live forever through cryogenics? Mm -hmm. But interestingly, we do, and similar to this guy, what's his name, James?
0: Brian.
1: Brian. Somebody. We do profess that we'll live forever, at least that's our confession, Mm -hmm. which actually I think should be a resource we have in the face of death. We We don't have to go to cryogenics because we profess that we believe in bodily resurrection, right? So I, here's what I was thinking about. I saw a picture of him. In the author, I think, of the article described him as both... He looked... He had, like, the body of an 18-year-old. But when he went to a conference, he some of the medical professionals there, the doctors said he looked actually quite pale and didn't look super healthy. Oh, interesting. And I, and I kind of got... Mm-hmm. He, he kind of had a little bit of a strange look to him. Yeah. And so yeah. here's my thing. Is, like, is that really the body you want to live in forever yeah and then kind of thinking from from a christian perspective again going back to our profession of, of bodily resurrection well what we don't really get a lot about in, in 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 the bible about what bodily resurrection looks like but our best i think example what we get is jesus body mm-hmm. after the resurrection and and it's really interesting because it's he eats fish right he explicitly says i'm you know i'm not a ghost people touch him But then he does things like walk through walls. Uh, He can move through time and space with a physical body. And so my question, I guess, is as a Christian, why would we want to freeze our current body uh, when the hope is for a resurrected body that's way better than kind of this one body you're trying to hold on to through cryogenics or or whatever? Here's what I want to get to, like in terms of maybe our own avoidance of death as Christians. Because we have, that's our profession. But I think the, the question is, do we really believe that? Right, That's one thing to say, like I believe, so let me give you an example. I was just, sometimes I take a break and I walk through our church cemetery, which one nice thing about living in a church that, or being part of a church that was is 200 plus years old is you're surrounded by a cemetery. Mm-hmm. And so, right, it's one thing to kind of talk uh, abstractly about the raising of the dead, But I was thinking about, specific bodies in a specific place rising from the dead, hmm. right? And that seems that seems really different than standing, you know, often in some churches they'll stand each week and, and recite the Apostles' Creed where you say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. But it seems very different to do that in a cemetery. And you're kind of forced to ask yourself, do I really believe this? Hmm. And you ask this in a culture I think that's very obviously fairly disenchanted, where we have... I think, a fair amount of doubts about the afterlife, uh, which I don't think you would have had in previous generations. I don't think that would have been. I mean, they would have some of their own challenges, but I don't think that would have been, for a lot of people, the big one. And so here's what I was thinking. We kind of got the YOLO creed has become more powerful than the Apostles' Creed. What did you say with the YOLO creed? Yeah, you only live once. You only live once. So here's: I think we hedge our bets because I think we profess in bodily resurrection But if we're totally honest with ourselves, we have doubts. Mm -hmm. It seems so out beyond what we can even understand. So I think, I guess going back to kind of avoidance of death, I think sometimes Christians avoid death because maybe we're not actually as convinced as we say we are about immortality.
0: Yeah. Our culture has a low tolerance for ambiguity. There's this idea that following rules makes us feel more secure, that we feel uncomfortable with these things that are uncontrollable. And obviously, death and aging are uncontrollable. As much as this guy thinks he can control his age and his life and not die, we know it's gonna happen, he's gonna die. He can't overcome what is a reality. It's just causing more, I think, in the end, stress. And what is the quality of his life, really?
1: Yeah, so I think you're naming something important. Again, going back to this question, why do we avoid death? For some people, death is the ultimate thing that's out of your control. So, mm-hmm. say you're you mentioned it uh, often as people that are typically very wealthy. Well, what does wealth give you? One of the things wealth gives you isn't a huge amount of control compared to a lot of people. And at a certain point, you can, can you feel like you got the sense of you can control everything. So, what I've observed just a little bit is that it seems like. People who have used to be in control, and I guess I'm thinking about that's made possible through wealth, really, really struggle at times to then confront something that is totally out of their control.
0: Yeah.
1: Someone who has spent their most of their life not being in control, either because they don't have the resources, they don't have the wealth... I don't think they, they confront death the same way because they mm-hmm. they've pri- in, ways, in many ways they've been disciplined into, and not always necessarily good ways, but disciplined into understanding that I'm not in control because yeah. I literally mm-hmm. haven't been control. And then you have people that have been able to control things down to the smallest part of their life, and then you confront death, and the mystery and the lack of control is, is too much.
0: Mm-hmm. The ways that we approach the struggles and sufferings that we have in life, I think you could probably look back and see... The people that overcome a lot of those challenges with wealth or privilege don't have the training Mm -hmm. to face death. Mm That You're right. It is kind of like a spiritual training Mm -hmm. that life is challenging, life is hard, and if we try to avoid suffering at every turn, then we ultimately are trying to avoid thinking about death.
1: Yeah. Not to pick on our friend in the Time article, but it seemed like a fairly joyless existence from what Uh he described. So the food, he kind of stripped out any kind of really enjoyment of food because he was eating this mush food. He would ask himself, is this, like if you were going to eat a cookie, I think this is damaging my body. (laughs) And then kind of the author at the end kind of like ends the article by saying, yeah, I think I'll take my, uh, she kind of lists these these pleasures she has whether Mm -hmm. talking with friends or traveling through the night, doing all these things that he would not do because you have to have, I don't know, eight and a half hours of sleep that then would keep you from doing these things. So it seemed like a fairly joyless life.
0: Yeah. Well, that makes me think of, you were talking about resurrection and Jesus's resurrected body. And I was thinking about how when Jesus's body was resurrected, he still had scars. Mm -hmm. He still had wounds. And if you're somebody like Brian, poor Brian, trying to avoid all the suffering of, of life and the scars of life, that our resurrected body is a result of some of those scars and wounds that we have whether that's physical or emotional or mental. And some of those wounds and scars come from our relationships too in good and painful ways. Like if you are not allowing yourself to be in community with people. I I don't know what this guy's community is like, but I can't imagine that it's a rich community. And that's part of what makes life full and worth living. And I think that leads us into eternity
1: in some ways. Well, I think he would say he feels like he's doing this for the benefit of the human race, that mm-hmm. he's kind of a prototype of what to show what is possible in terms of indefinite extension of life. And I think we, I was actually just reading a, an op-ed by David Brooks this morning, who was talking about uh, Elon Musk and, and just kind of the savior complex that Elon Musk mm-hmm. has. And these ventures that he's doing... I think he would say, are for ultimately the benefit of humankind, whether it's moving him from, away from carbon and, and uh, the electric vehicle, going to Mars, he's working on some artificial intelligence. You peel back some of the layers of some of these people that are doing this work, I think they would say, and that's probably what offers them some meaning and purpose, is that I'm doing this for the good of the human race.
0: Mm-hmm. What if we don't want him to, though? <laughs> I'd rather he uses wealth. For yeah. the people who are suffering now, the people that, frankly, if we do have a giant ship that takes us to Mars, who are going to be the people that are in that ship?
1: Yeah,
0: it's yeah. not going to be the people who are suffering now.
1: Yeah,
0: it's going to be the wealthy who can afford it, right? Yeah, I mean that's in every science fiction movie or or book ever. Is it's the people with wealth and influence yeah. that that have this possibility.
1: That's some of the ways that we've seen other people avoid death. What about you? Mm. Uh, how do you avoid death?
0: Yeah, this one's hard. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind was when my father died. He died about seven years ago. And we lived, We were living in Illinois at the time. And so when he died, my my dad lived in Texas with my the rest of my family. So when he died, I wasn't there. But a lot of them were there. And so they could go to to his body and sit with him and you know just grieve over his body and I had to do that through FaceTime which was really painful but then when, I, when we finally made it down to Texas my mom asked me if I wanted to go see his body and it had been in a freezer at the morgue and Matthew offered to come with me and I didn't mm-hmm. want to do it I didn't want to see his body decaying I mean, it was frozen, but I'm sure there was decay that was showing. I mean, I think people would say, "Oh, that's understandable. You want to remember him how he was," but there is, I think, something important that's lost in grieving when you don't, you know, see the physical body Mm -hmm. of someone that you've lost. I think that it kind of does something to us. So um, I was
1: just reading. I was just actually reading a book on grief, mm -hmm. and one of the things that she was pointing out was. The benefit that comes from seeing the body, because one of the first steps in grief is acknowledging the reality of death, and there's something about that, and we know this because we know, for example, how traumatic it is for family when there's no recovery of a body. Yeah, I mean, we'll, people will go to. I, I was actually just reading. We just came across the the September 11th anniversary. What was that a week or two ago? And they're still recovering. They're still working at recovering. Um, some of the bodies, some of the really, yeah, they're still yeah, yep. Yeah. When you never have that, it it makes that that first step of acknowledging the reality of death is a, so much harder. Yeah. And so, what is it in you? Why? Why did I
0: avoid? Do you, yeah. Why that? do you
1: think you avoided seeing, wanting to see your father's body? Because you're not alone. And I think yeah. a lot of people would say, intuitively, I don't want to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. It felt almost like a horror movie going to see. My dad's body having decayed a bit, it felt like an image that would be traumatic. I think it might have been, but I also think it might have been a good thing to do. If if I could have gone back, I might have actually done it. So I think I was avoiding the trauma or the pain of seeing his
1: body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's important to say that this avoidance of death is not going to be explicit, right? It's going to be embedded in us. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's going to be hard, often, for us to identify our own avoidance of death. Maybe with some time, like I know, I'm sure at the time you weren't thinking, "Well, I'm avoiding death Mm -hmm. by not going to look at my father's body." I don't think we usually know the ways that we're avoiding death.
0: Yeah, I think all a lot of the stuff that we talk about, I hope you can hear that it comes with a lot of compassion and understanding because we we all do it, right? We're all in a world that wants to carry us toward death and avoidance in, this, in particularly our culture, especially people with wealth and privilege, which we are included in, we can more easily fake ourselves out into thinking that we can control yeah. um, all the pain and suffering and death in
1: our life. And maybe we should name that people are probably coping with death. Like right. We all... Are going to find some way to cope i think what we're trying to say is the wider culture's guidance in terms of coping with death may not be the best way yeah. forward so again i think people like even avoiding seeing your father's body i think you're it's a way of coping you're mm-hmm. trying to cope with the reality of father's death and that makes sense and i think you'd have people come alongside you and say yes absolutely you shouldn't have to do that but i think it helps to have some say somebody to say speak some wisdom in the situation speak the the wisdom of people have found of seeing. Not to say that everyone's going to see a body, but for most people, this is an important part of the grief process mm-hmm. and death. Typically, it would be a better way to begin the coping process than some of the other ways that we cope. Because again, yeah, we're going to find true. a way to cope. It's just how are we going to cope? Why? What are, let's turn this to a little bit more positive. What is the benefit of paying attention to death?
0: Well, I think the more things we do to avoid death, the more it becomes something that we are anxious about. Psychologists actually say that death anxiety is considered a basic fear underlying a ton of different mental, psychological conditions. I think that approaching our fear of death is actually a really healthy way. I mean, we think about anxiety, what what does psychology tell us about anxiety? If we're anxious about something that's actually going to hurt us, like of course, don't don't go like run toward a bear when you're anxious about a bear being near you. <laughs> but if you're anxious about something that is not going to hurt you or traumatize you, then the best thing that you can do is actually go t- be exposed to it, mm-hmm. go toward mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. approaching our fear of death and understanding our death anxiety is actually a healthy thing for Mm -hmm. us psychologically.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I think that's a big part of it, that idea of moving towards that which we fear. Mm -hmm. I guess that would be exposure therapy.
0: And going back to poor Brian.
1: Brian is not going to listen to this. He's not going to be happy if he listens to this episode. Brian,
0: like, I kind of want you just to... I don't personally want to give you a hug, but I feel like you need a hug.
1: (laughs) He doesn't probably want to hug because that you might. <laughs> I might give him germs. Yeah, exactly. But that's
0: the whole thing is that our culture is so off the charts on loneliness. And I think someone like Brian is a, is a good example that avoiding death can actually make you lonelier, can actually make you avoid community and avoid avoid the beautiful things in life that come with sometimes suffering and pain and that's no way to live
1: yeah and even if what was it the, you know the Surgeon General within the last year i think released some statistics on kind of what the actual damage is to life expectancy of loneliness and it was mm. pretty shocking i mean i don't know how exactly you measure that but compared to like smoking and I don't know how many cigarettes a day, but we know, I think we're pretty confident now that loneliness has serious health consequences.
0: Yeah. And our culture gets increasingly more lonely. Mm -hmm. You know, as we move away from our families the way we did, Mm -hmm. and we aren't moving away from the communities that that we used to be bound by, like our religious institutions, and we are more on our screens and more in virtual communities, which is, you know, virtual communities have their place. But we become more isolated from each other, and we come become lonelier. Mm-hmm. So, what about you? What do you think is the importance of paying attention to death?
1: Well, I think one of the things paying attention to death is we've talked a little bit. It forces you to confront the finitude of your life. I think we kind of often move through life in kind of this anesthetized state, and I think we begin to think that we subconsciously or consciously that we have this infinite amount of time. So, I think. Death and grief have a way of piercing through that, mm-hmm. that anesthetized state, because you realize life is short. Oftentimes it helps kind of sober you up. But what am I, I waste a lot of energy and time on things that I maybe don't really care about. Someone who may not want to normally talk about spiritual, religious things seems to be much more open after they've lost a loved one. I think the reason for that is because I mean, what people would say is that brings, uh, that person encountered to with mystery and forces uh, them to encounter their own limitations. Oftentimes we're scared because death is out of our control. Well, then what do you turn to? Well, then you have to turn to something bigger than life and that is religion. And so it's oftentimes people then go to religion because religion transcends those limits. I don't think we have to wait until we lose a loved one to kind of pierce that bubble and to remind ourselves of our limits, I think we can start to do that now, and I think that is one of the benefits of of remembering our death.
0: At the end of each episode, we want to share something that has been a memento mori for us in the past week, something that has helped us think more about our death. So Matthew, do you have something?
1: Yeah, I, so going back, I mentioned earlier that I was walking through our cemetery, which I sometimes do to t- take breaks from my work. And so I would encourage you that if you have a cemetery outside your place of work, I would encourage you to, to take walks. That's that's a good momentum, mori. And
0: this is the cemetery, if you want to explain how old our church is. Yeah, so our
1: church has been around since the early 1800s, and we have two cemeteries. One is, is very old and one is quite old. But this one has, you know, it's definitely got some tombstones from the 1800s. And so I was walking through there and I heard somebody one time talk about how you only get the dash, meaning you only get your life, what you get is that dash between those two numbers. And so you look at all these numbers, sometimes people have 30 years, 50 years, 80 years, but everyone gets that dash between these two numbers. So I think that's a really helpful reminder of how short life is. And again, kind of piercing through that anesthetized state that we often kind ourselves walking in and And hopefully we'll help us come alive. Like, wow, I only get the dash, but I get the dash um, as a gift. So that was my practice this week.
0: Yeah, cemetery walks can be a great memento mori. I mean, for one thing, most cemeteries are beautiful. Mm -hmm. But just looking at all the names and thinking, I will be here one day. Yeah. I will be here one day. Yes, you too, Brian. You will be there one day.
1: (laughs) What about you? you? What's been your practice or what practice do you think of?
0: Well, it's not so much a practice as just something that I saw on Instagram lately. There's an author that I follow, and he posted a video of J.R.R. Tolkien, who is the author of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, talking on the BBC when he was, he looked to be about 70 years old. But, and this was many years ago, of course. But he's sitting in front of a messy and tilted pile of books.
1: So creative people like you, messy is crazy, okay, messy. honey. Okay, oh, messy okay. is okay. And pipes are okay too, right?
0: Yes, he had a pipe in his hand. Good. If you though.
1: get a pipe, if you start smoking a pipe, then uh, you're okay. With I'll be that? okay with the mess. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't want to smoke a pipe, but he looked a bit like kind of like Gandalf without a beard. And he says in his, and I'm gonna do his English accent okay. because I think it needs it. He says. Practically all human stories are about one thing, aren't they? And then he has this dramatic pause. And then he says, death, the inevitability of death. And then he reads a quote about death. And then he says that death is at the heart of Lord of the Rings. Mm. And that pleased me so Mm. very much Mm. that the heart of, you know, the greatest human story. And I consider him one of the greatest Mm. storytellers. Um, of all time, that the heart of many of so many of these human stories are, is the inevitability of death. And I just love that. Mm. It made me feel validated. I think it's Tol- so important.
1: Tolkien's got your back. T-
0: Tolkien from beyond the grave has got
1: my back. Well, thank you for joining us on Tell Death Do Us Parts.
0: If you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Share with a friend, leave a comment, or email us at podcast till death do us part at gmail.com. That's podcast till T-I-L death do us part. And let us know what you think about what you're hearing. Goodbye, and don't, don't forget, forget to remember, remember your, your death. death. sounds and songs for Till Death Do Us Part were mixed, recorded, and created by me, Christiana Peterson. The lyrics to our theme song, Am I Born to Die, were written by Charles Wesley.